Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey listeners, Becky here with a quick content warning before we start. The first half of today's episode deals with some subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners, including being taken advantage of while vulnerable, discussions around sexual assault and consent, the use of the R word in a clip, as well as a story about a film that involves one of the former heads of Miramax. If that's not something you're up for today, we totally understand. Feel free to join us for the second half of the episode, where the subject is lighter. You can skip to the 41-minute, one-second mark to hear that. Thank you so much for listening. And now, on with the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher. And this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. Femme fatale. Vamp. Man-eater. Lady jerk. They're dangerous, unpredictable women, cunning, seductive, promiscuous, using their feminine wiles to destroy men and the lives of others. In stories, men are helpless until it's almost too late to save themselves and their family. But don't worry, the femme fatale will inevitably destroy herself. She obviously has to be punished. The late 80s and early 90s were full of these minxes. Think of Alex the Bunny Boiler in Fatal Attraction sinking into the bathtub riddled with bullet holes. Hetty and single white female stabbed in the back. Heck, even Catwoman bites it, or rather kisses it, at the end of Batman Returns. 1992 saw two femme fatales, or rather one 17-year-old girl and a schoolteacher, in real life get absolutely crucified by the media, one of them which would go on to change the way we talk about trials forever. Cam, who are we talking about today? Yeah, well, as we talk about in the show, uh, I think what made these evil kind of women killers or manipulative women in film pop off is uh, really Amy Fisher, uh, the Long Island Lolita, oh, man. <laughs> as oh. she's unfortunately known. Uh, but yeah, essentially, yeah, it was this uh, case where she shot her much older lover's wife. Even at the time is kind of a question of was it manipulation? How much was she uh, involved? And then the other person we're talking about is the the prior trial of Pamela Smart. A lot is kind of lost to time a bit, but really predated the O.J. Simpson trial as a media circus. It was the is first what you would call televised it. trial, wasn't it? it? Yeah. So it's the first trial. There were televised trials before, like Ted Bundy, uh, but it's the first trial where the cameras were allowed in for the whole trial. Okay. And the first trial mm-hmm. where. Like where that synced up with the 24 hour news cycle, essentially. So the serial killers, some of the people, the previous trials, just it was the nightly news. But with Pamela Smart, you had places that were just 
showing Pamela Smart constantly. Like, if you think of the O.J. Simpson trial for anyone our age, it was the equivalent of that. Can you uh, uh, talk a little bit about who Pamela Smart was? That's a name that I'm sure, sure maybe some people aren't uh, familiar with. Yeah, it's it's another murder where uh, a young, she's also very young. I believe she's 22. Uh, and she had a teenage lover uh, who was 15. But she also was married. What they argue is she got her lover uh, and uh, three of his friends to uh, murder her husband. Is this the um, woman that To Die For is kind of based on? Yeah. Yes, yes. So ah, stuff like To Die yes. For is is, ba- is based on stuff like Serial Loosely. Mom, uh, which we talk yes. about. Serial yes. Mom is, is very inspired by Pamela Smart. And she is not necessarily the person that those portray where she was obsessed with the media coverage. I don't think she likes it. She is uh, still in jail uh, with no chance of parole. Mm. Very interesting thing. I I really recommend if you're interested in more Pamela Smart, there's an HBO documentary called Captivated the Trials of Pamela Smart, Mm. uh, which a lot is really about, hey, why does everyone forget that this happened before OJ and kind of set the scene for these trial by media? And Pamela Smart essentially says uh, her argument, uh, especially against uh, no chance of parole because she's been in jail for a long time is that uh, her trial was unfairly influenced by the media mm. and you see a lot of the ways mm-hmm. that the oj simpson trial especially if you watch the people versus oj simpson you see how much more locked down those jurors were like those jurors got like a tape of seinfeld a night they were allowed to watch <laughs> they were not allowed tv they were not allowed to talk to anybody uh, and it's partially because i think any lawyer says that the Pamela Smart case was quite influenced by the media coverage uh, and and really turned the public against her. But she seems undoubtedly involved in the crime. And kind of people say, like, undoubtedly. If, uh, and she is also in jail for conspiracy to commit murder. She did not commit the murder. And it really kind of got mm-hmm. people talking. And I think on top of that, those two big cases, the films we're going to talk about, also are very influenced by changes in uh, rape law. Uh, Like, for instance, in Mm -hmm. 1992, we have our rape shield law in Canada, which precludes the ability to cross-examine people based on their sexual history or their profession. Mm -hmm. So a sex worker is not immune to rape because they are a sex worker. Uh, And also in the United States, it was the beginning of changes to laws. So, for instance, in 1993, marital rape was no longer allowed. Your husband could rape you. It took that long. So (laughs) this is when a lot of those things were changing, which I think plays in very closely, as well as, for instance, we talked about already the Clarence Thomas hearings, sexual harassment, consent, uh, things like that. And that really, as you said, led to these huge movies, uh, Batman Returns, Basic Instinct, and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle were Mm -hmm. all in the top 10 films of 1992. Well, and scared the crap out of the populace. Uh, I guess that leads... Especially the male populace. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, I guess that... Well, and women, too. And that actually leads us into our first first film, because I don't know about you guys. Did you have older siblings or, or cousins who exposed you to movies you were, like, way too young to see, let alone for process yeah no becky i had two very ill-advised parents <laughs> who rented the the hand that rocks the cradle and had an eight-year-old girl watch it yeah uh, i was thinking about this because like you mentioned candy man earlier i saw candy man mm. at the same time mm-hmm. as this and silence of the lambs i was nine me too and they messed me up pretty hard but honestly the mm-hmm. one with the imagery that messed me up the most was hand that rocks the cradle and i mean i could still before i rewatched this movie as an adult for this podcast i could i still remembered i think it was a fire poker or a crowbar. I don't remember what Ernie Hudson gets beaten with. Yeah, because I was looking between my fingers the second time. The gynecology scene and the Mm -hmm. impalement at the end, spoiler alert, are the three Mm -hmm. things that like I still like really still (laughs) stood out for me. I'm now able to process what's going on 
And I'm still horrified, especially by that gynecology scene. And I think one of the reasons why is because it was written by a woman who knows exactly how vulnerable you are when you're in a gynecologist's mm-hmm. office. Yeah, let's talk about Amanda Silver. So first of all, this is The Hand Rocks the Cradle is directed by Curtis Hansen, and this is not the first time we've had no. a Curtis Hansen film and it won't be the last the time. Yeah, he's, he's quite prolific. Yeah, he comes up a lot. I, I think he's an excellent director. But uh, Amanda Silver, this is her kind of debut screenplay. If you Google her now, she's a very, very powerful woman. Uh, she writes, along with her partner, Rick Jaffa, the recent uh, Rise in the Planet of the Apes franchise. She She's currently working on Avatar 2, 3, 4, 5 through 9 or however many James Cameron Avatar films he's working on. She's a, she's a powerhouse. But she got her start writing The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. What you're describing, Becky, with that visual memory from your childhood of those particular scenes and how you're able to process it now, I have those same memories of the exact three scenes you're talking about and, and even more. As an adult, I still cannot process what is, like, so terrifying of this film. I mean, obviously, the three of us decided we were going to do a podcast on this title. And I knew when writing it down that I would deplore the idea of having to watch this again. Let's see, I was eight. So, like, almost 30 years later. (laughs) This is one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. It is a very simple story. It's about um, there's a a woman who's pregnant with her second child. She has a new obstetrician because her old one's retired. While on the table, he sexually assaults her. uh, And she tells her husband, who thank God believes her right away, because there's a lot of films like this about like, oh, there's someone's crazy and they're trying to kill me. And the husbands never believe the wives. And actually, this film is different for that reason. She comes forward and reports him. Turns out he's done this to a variety of women. He's going to be put on trial. Instead of standing trial, he cowardly shoots himself. At the time of his death, his wife, played by Rebecca de Mornay, is pregnant. The stress of this, uh, she loses her baby, has to have an emergency hysterectomy. And then, of course, because of the lawsuit that emerges because of this, all of his former assets are frozen, so she loses her $8 million Seattle house. She's super pissed. She's had a she's had a hard go of it. And so perhaps you would have empathy for her in or sympathy in the beginning of the film, <laughs> but boy do they destroy that quickly. Yeah, um, don't they ever listen if you if you want a good quote, uh, Rita Campley of the Washington Post described Rebecca de Mornay as the most un- unsympathetic villainess since the alien, mm-hmm. <laughs> which Whoa. is pretty good. <laughs> I would compare her to the Terminator in Terminator 1. Sure. Okay. Like, unstoppable. I actually think it's Jaws. For me, it's the shark in Jaws, mm. like a blue-eyed Jaws. Ugh, she's mm. so freaky. That is, yeah, I could see. I mean, I hope listeners are, the, the the fact that listeners need to take away is she's a bad person. You, you also never get to see her before either, really. It's just she's thrown into the situation and just goes on the attack. I the only time you see her is when her husband's colleagues or the board of the, med- the medical board tells her like all of his assets are frozen, but she's like, Eight months pregnant, wearing the tightest power suit I've ever seen in my life. So that <laughs> gives you a sense of who she is. But uh, she decides to pose as a nanny under a different name, a nanny to the family of the woman who first reported this case. Uh, so she blames her. This woman's played by Annabella Shiora, who's quite good in it. And uh, she has a five-year-old daughter and, and, you know, has had her pregnancy reach term. So she's a newborn infant. And so Rebecca de Mornay's character, whose name is Peyton Flanders, which yeah. is a very puzzling name, poses as this woman who's lost her baby and her husband recently. And she's just, you know, she just wants to like experience family, like through being a nanny. 
And then she systematically gaslights the entire family into various scenarios where Annabella Shiora's character is undermined. So she starts breastfeeding the baby so that Annabella Shiora's baby is turned off her own milk. There is, and we're going to talk about this character quite a bit more, but I'll just bring it up. Ernie Hudson plays um, the kind of the groundskeeper who is labeled in 1992 terms as a special person. And he is framed as a molester by Peyton. Uh, so they fire him and he's like the only protector for the family. And various, and then of course is going to totally try to sleep with um, the husband of the family, the father. It's terrifying. To give an example, so Annabella Shiora's character suffers from asthma, which I think is a very relatable. I mean, asthma affects a huge portion of the population, and we know how terrifying it is either to have or if you've been around someone. It triggers her too when she gets stressed out, and yeah. she is constantly stressed out. Well, yeah, so. and uh, so Rebecca Dumourney's character goes around the house and empties every single puffer that she has, <laughs> so that when she has an asthma attack she hopes that she'll kill her. But like, it's, it's also a great, shot. A great scene. Yeah, so deliberately <laughs> so as she's just sitting there like just pumping it with those big, which is why I say shark because like her yeah. blue eyes are so freaking yeah. vacant the whole time and yeah. you're just like, oh. She's incredible in this. I, yeah. I don't even understand how she didn't destroy her career by playing a character this evil. There's another uh, very well-known actress making a pretty early role and that would be Julianne Moore is in yeah. this film. Very young as Annabella Shiora's character's best friend who is killed in a glass um, <laughs> Greenhouse incident orchestrated <laughs> mm. by Peyton. It is almost like the moment that puts this film from thriller to like slasher horror. To bring this as well to um, another film by Curtis Hansen or written by Curtis Hansen, it's similar to The Silent Partner, where it's this cat and mouse yes. game, cat and mouse game, and then it flips into a slasher where you watch a woman get decapitated a by very, a fish tank. A it's very, very similar. I think yeah. he's making disguised uh, uh, slashers, you might be right. Mm. And you're right, Becky, to point out really early in the film, just her in stirrups on the table being sexually assaulted by the man who plays Q in Star Trek The Next Generation, which I have to say, as an eight-year-old, I loved Q, and that's what really <laughs> messed me up because I didn't understand what sexual assault was. Sure. Like, I, there was so much that while I was watching this at 37 years old, I just thought about me watching this with my parents, and I was like, what... I'm not trying to bash my parents. I, will, I can do that enough in, in my private life. What were they thinking? It is incredible. And you're right. It's because it's written by a woman. Rebecca Dormornay is phenomenal in this. And I don't think she had ever been properly really utilized prior to after this. either or after oh she, she's got some good stuff I, I would say i was actually shocked because i was kind of like did this ruin her career yeah. but she's worked she constantly but, yeah. and she's got some interesting roles and i would i do want to say a good fact that you guys may or may not know is she took this role after just her big it. thing she you're, wanted you're, you're in 1992 you're stealing my fact oh well <laughs> that's Cam can have sorry one. she wanted to be tinkerbell yes. and hood she wanted to be tinkerbell you've been talking this whole time alisa <laughs> let me have one fact <laughs> Uh, yeah, so she wanted to be Tinkerbell and Hook, and when she didn't get it, she was like, ah, screw yeah. it. Hand the rocks to Cradle. Yeah, and then, they, and then Julia Roberts got cast as Tinkerbell, and everyone on set called her Tinker Hell because she was so terrible to work with. Oh, um, really? Yeah, so th that is true. And I don't know. There's a, there's a husband in this film. I don't remember the actor's name. He's completely useless. This is really <laughs> the battle of two kind of make of two matriarchs and it uh, it gets grim. Uh, Ernie Hudson's character, Cam, okay, oh, Cam. Me? Ernie, 
Cam and Becky, what do we think about Ernie Hudson's character? Because I am very conflicted. Okay, before we get into this, allow me just to play a quick Mm. clip of Ernie Hudson talking about why he wanted the role because he campaigned for it. And that's actually, I think, an important thing to think about. You know, when I I first uh, read the script and I wasn't up for the part and I really sort of campaigned for it, I went in and I I tried to, to get them to see me in the role because it was not written for a black actor. I think the studio might have felt that um, if it wasn't done right, uh, either it could be very embarrassing to people who are mentally disabled, or you can make some very negative statements about black men in general. So you had to play the guy, I I felt, as a person. And uh, I visited a lot of the um, homes for the mentally disabled. And uh, I found that there are a lot of people, thousands, who do have problems that we somehow don't see because we have a way of sort of, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And, uh, and I tried to find that common denominator that they all have, no matter what level of re- uh, disability. When I went to the first dance, they all came over to me and they, they shook my hand and were so happy to see me and they hugged me. And I thought it was because I was in Ghostbusters. And then I noticed they did it to everybody. Mm. It had nothing to do with it. They have this enormous capacity to, to give to, love, to give love mm. and, and, to, and to want to be a part of. And that's what the movie, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, is, is about. I'm on the fence. I think the biggest issue, pardon the pun, I think the biggest issue I have is that they're very inconsistent with what it is that's, what his particular handicap is. Yes. Like what exactly yeah. his, his disability is, if you will, sorry. And so, like, sometimes he's very intelligent, very quick, and sometimes he's super slow. Yeah. So it's, I, I think the inconsistencies are, yeah. are my biggest I, issue. I mean, he it. seems like realistic. he's probably on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, and I mean, it's a it's an interesting thing that I think Hollywood still hasn't grappled with yet, where it's like you would like this role to be cast with somebody who is actually has these issues but that's still i think nowadays we push for it a lot more but it still rarely happens and i think he gives a great performance and he's really the audience surrogate because he's one of the only people that gets what's going on throughout almost the entire movie there's a tv show that would have been airing at the time that this film And this film was number one at the box office for four weeks, which is quite impressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's Life Goes On, which was the first show that had a, I think the first episode's in 1989. It goes to 1993. The first time you had an actor with Down syndrome portraying someone with Down syndrome happens in in this period. So it was something that was very discussed in the media, which I do think would have tempered a bit of how, and I'm not saying Ernie Hudson's character has Down syndrome, although that is, the R word is brought up a lot mm-hmm. in a very hateful way by the bitch that is Rebecca DeMornay. <laughs> this would have been a discussion point for sure in media. Oh, there was. Uh, this is actually from the same interview with Ernie Hudson, and uh, you're going to hear Regis and Kathy Lee who are interviewing them. And I think this is kind of an indication of where that conversation in media was at the time. Character was very different in a lot of ways from what I am and how I see myself. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a good acting. Is he what, mentally retarded? This well, gentleman? not retarded. They make that a point, right? Though. Yeah. Well, mentally yeah. disadvantaged. Uh, dis- he's mentally disabled. Retarded disabled. is not really a, a good word because uh-huh. there's so many levels of. Of retardation. course. Sure. Yeah. The other thing that I'm kind of fascinated with is how many critics who watch this don't talk about the Ernie Hudson performance. Mm. They I mostly think focus on. A hundred percent. And it's and because it, it's also very uncomfortable in yeah. that, like, we're not going to believe this person yeah. and how everybody yeah. in this is so vulnerable. It is a film perfectly calculated for maximum ick. Yeah. And I that's the one thing where I almost think that if you cast somebody actually on an autism spectrum, it would push the film into feeling too gross. 
like two exploiters. I think yeah. if if Rebecca DeMornay was that mean to to somebody that you couldn't go, okay, well he's acting. It's okay, he's uh, in Ghostbusters. We know. Yeah, he's exactly. Not, yeah. It's, it's Ernie Hudson. We love him. Uh, like he does get. He gets his revenge, if you will. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think that that would push it almost to. That's the only thing that I think is like, it, yeah, you you almost couldn't. Um, yeah. It's it's a very strange movie. I mean, there's a there's a ongoing theme throughout it of Gilbert and Sullivan music. Oh, you mean the yeah. HMS Pinafore and <laughs> yes. uh, Pirates of Peasants? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's weird because there's so many of their operettas have switching babies in them. Uh, yeah. It's produced by a subsidiary of Disney, which is very yeah. odd. Uh, Hollywood yeah. Pictures, which was essentially made on the back of <laughs> of the hand that rocks the cradle. It's one of their only major financial successes, other than the Sixth Sense. There was a talk about remaking this mm-hmm. at ABC Family back mm-hmm. in 2013. Yeah. I think someone went, what the hell are we doing? We and did do not do it it's for ABC Family. still owned by Disney. It's, a, yeah. it's kind of an unusual yeah. one. Yeah. Speaking of remakes, I was really fascinated and I'm very curious. I don't know how to access them, but it was remade in Hindi in 1993 mm. and then re- remade again in 2009 in uh, Telugu. So like two different dialects in India have used this film in sort of a Bollywood way. And I I would love to see an Indian interpretation of this story. Like, I'm fascinated. It's just preying on such universal ick factors, if you will. And what's interesting to me is when you watch, um, like, say, Siskel and Ebert talk about this, or really any any man reviewing this film, the thing that they cannot, they all find it very upsetting, but the thing they cannot wrap their head around is why she hired this woman in the first place. With no background check. No background check. And it's it's funny because um, Ebert loved this movie and actually Mm -hmm. went against Siskel trying to defend the premise. I found this film worked, and that's usually the way I approach it. I go to a thriller expecting to be thrilled. I don't go expecting to have all of my sensibilities respected and uh, all of my sensitivities uh, honored because I know that in a movie like this, I, I can almost anticipate exactly what it's going to be Can I ask about. you one question? Yeah. Would the picture have been better if you had bought the premise? See, that's the pr- where we do have this argument. You'll say, but Gene, you got to grant a movie its premise. And I say, not really. Let them write a better premise, then I'll grant it. I grant the premise. I, uh, you could re- pick up the paper and read about Killer Nannies right now, going on all over the country. Oh, Roger. And that's true. It's so effective. It really is an elevated, cheap exploitation film. Coming back to exactly how you introduced this film, Becky, I think is credited to not just Curtis Hansen's very deft direction, but uh, it's uh, it's Amanda Silver. It's just mm-hmm. the vulnerability. Like I, I, And I'm happy that this affects all genders this in a similar way because— you could you would think it would just be kind of geared towards women because how many men have had that experience of being in stirrups and mm. you know, <laughs> not having met your doctor before and like that kind of intimacy is so and if I terrifying. can just for a second the, the, the I'm gonna skip forward ten seconds if you don't want a graphic depiction of, of this but when the glove comes off during that exam mm. that was based on a joke Curtis Hansen's uh, wife's gynecologist made when he went with her to her appointment Oof. he yeah. <sighs> Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. It's um, I really want to recommend this film to people with a few reservations that it is this graphic. Please do not show your eight year old daughter this film. (laughs) No, Uh, no. The other reservation. If I could go have a time machine and and talk to my parents about what kind of media they showed me. Um, It's also I wanted. Okay, I'm going to backtrack and defend my parents. There was a possibility (laughs) that I watched this crept down in my basement steps looking out into the living room because that's how I watched films I wasn't allowed to watch was I would 
I think they knew I was there. I would like be in the on the lower floor watching through a banister. <laughs> like sure. that's how I saw a lot of movies. But uh, I mean, I just saw some... this on cable too. In spite of it being an R-rated movie, it was true. a real cable favorite. Yeah, so, you could have just um, wandered on it as yeah, a kid. Yeah, I think it was true. just a Fox afternoon sort of movie. But those are the films that are scariest, right? Like, there's oh, not yeah. a lot of blood in this. There is a no. little bit of violence. It's it's not that graphic. <laughs> it's the psychological graphicness yeah. that will always scare you more than a Michael Myers film. Yeah. Um, I do want to bring in just quickly, uh, one of the original people who was still considered for the role of Mrs. Mott, who's played by mm-hmm. Rebecca DeMornay, was Sybil Shepard. And yeah. she turned down the role because she found it anti-feminist. Uh, mm-hmm. She believed that it was actually a cautionary tale about women who are punished because they uh, can't handle their own children. I don't think she's wrong. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And uh, she had two young children at the time as well. She's Later on in the interview, she actually says, I should have taken the damn thing. It would have been Mm -hmm. great for my career. But she's not wrong. I also Mm -hmm. think it's very interesting that, like, this woman is targeted because essentially she spoke up for sexual harassment. Yeah. First, Uh, yeah. First. It it goes out of their way to say that she wasn't involved in the case trying to get money or anything. She just Mm -hmm. wanted this guy to be, have his license taken away, essentially. And as you said earlier, her her husband's the one who pushes her into it. So there is that whole concept of like, I I can't say anything. No one's going to believe me. Like, it's very early for addressing those kind of ideas. He says basically like, you know, because she doesn't feel like she can do it. And he's like, if you don't do it, and he does it to other women, which at the time the viewer doesn't know that there's multiple women who will come forward, mm-hmm. um, several women, in fact, uh, you know, if you if you don't come out and it happens to other women, like you're kind of at fault, which is yeah. a very, oh, that's a difficult lie, line to <laughs> toe. That's, uh, it, that was also very relatable. Like just listening to that was like, God, these are the conversations we're still having. I think that leads us perfectly into our next film. So uh, do you guys feel the need to know why a character is the way they are? Do you need a backstory for Hannibal Lecter? How about The Grinch or Willy Wonka? How many movies have ruined stories by, among other things, adding backstories or flashbacks that don't really need to be there, that were never intended to be there? And that's only part of the story behind Love Crimes, a movie that's hard to track down and we all don't necessarily recommend that you watch it, but the story behind it is really something else and the filmmaker's other work definitely deserves rediscovery. Uh, The clips from this segment are going to come from an interview with filmmaker Lizzie Borden conducted by uh, friends of the show, Will Sloan and Justin DeClue, who appear in the A Year in Film TV series on their excellent podcast, The Important Cinema Club. Uh, Justin and Will are great Go check it out. Um, a word of warning for this one, as if you're if you're still here from the last one, uh, <laughs> Miramax was the distributor for this picture, so a convicted human monster is part of the story. Oh boy, Cam, let's talk about love crimes and Lizzie Borden and the I terrible mean, things that yeah. happened. Yeah, but beyond Weinstein, it's also a tough sit. Uh, yeah. if, if you do manage to dig up a version of this film, uh, it is also about, I mean, we were talking about the, the kind of institutional sexual harassment of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. This one is about, uh, essentially, Sean Young plays a district attorney who has become obsessed with this guy who poses as a photographer of models and then has uh what is legally consensual but Mm -hmm. rough sex 
with the people he tricks into modeling and, and, and coerced it's and coerced success. and uh he's lied they find out later he's lied he sometimes robs them lightly uh and yeah he, he just has icky gross sex <laughs> with a lot of women <laughs> he's just he's a serial what would be ra- like it, he's a serial rapist essentially but a, in a legal way that is a real loophole um so she sets out to catch him she kind of finds out where he where he is and tries to entrap him essentially but then gets caught up in an odd uh psychosexual what was i believe intended to be sadomasochistic relationship but at the time uh the 90s weren't quite ready for sadomasochism <laughs> uh, we had to wait for secretary apparently yeah <laughs> yeah Gyllenhaal. it sounds like it was kind of a weird like a darker secretary kind of something like the hollywood reporter goes out of their way to weirdly be like well this guy's not even a criminal he's a macho misogynist mm-hmm. and you're like oh boy mm-hmm. uh, um, but yeah, so this movie, we were interested in talking about it because it is a famous kind of way we we're talking about all these women making movies. And this one did kind of famously ruin Lizzie Borden's career for a long mm-hmm. time. It was one of the most kind of famous fiascos of the time. It also sort of ruined Sean Young's career, uh, among other things. She's back now, thankfully. It was pitched as an erotic thriller. It is d- deeply it's not erotic. Not- <laughs> well, you even look at the poster. I'm actually looking at it right now. Yeah. And there's Sean Young in black laced lingerie splayed out with Patrick Bergen just kind of like hovering over yeah. top of her, grabbing her wrist and her her calf mm-hmm. at the same yeah. time. And it's, it's that is n- kind of the movie, but not the movie no, you're going no. to. I believe Harvey Weinstein art directed that particular yeah. poster. <sighs> and I mean, you knowing, if you're unfamiliar with Lizzie Borden, she's this uh, intense feminist filmmaker that makes these very interesting films mm-hmm. dealing with a lot of women's issues that are unusual coming at them from angles that you wouldn't expect. Born uh, in Flames is the big one. Mm-hmm, yeah. I, how would you describe her films, Alicia? Do you have like a... You know, I have to say I've only seen this and Born in Flames, so I don't know if I'm... And not that she same. has that many films, but uh, you know, we Working we did, Girls is the other big one. Yeah, mm-hmm. we did a screening, uh, Sartai Black did a screening for Black um, Gold at the Royal here in Toronto of... of Born in Flames. Sorry, Born in Flames uh, with a Q&A with Lizzie Borden, which mm-hmm. uh, was really, really wonderful like via Skype. It's hard to just... Uh, there's nothing like Born in Flames. It's a no. DIY, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic, <laughs> punk, feminist, black rights like it, it it's uh it's you i can't describe it yeah i watched very, that whole thing no i, I know, know yeah it's like it's like she's like a very cutting edge political avant-garde feminist like, yeah. art filmmaker essentially kind of riot girl there's some riot girl in there yeah there's yeah interestingly when i'm trying to think of what she's trying to do here another movie that comes to mind is somebody who collaborated with her as an actress on born in flames Catherine bigelow's blue steel yeah mm. which it's is very similar that also a weird attraction repulsion female law enforcement male criminal with very um, problematic rape politics yeah, exactly. as well that are actually similar to this yeah. yes and, and so i think that when i'm trying to figure out what because the whole thing is it's very interesting and why this interview that justin and will did is so interesting is because even contemporaneously it was known that lizzie borden wasn't happy with the final product that's in theaters the, but theater- the director's cut yeah, came out Cam. exactly and then at the very end harvey was the one who told me that he would destroy my career if i took my name off the film and even the so-called director's cut which was basically just eight minutes of R-rated stuff. That was just a ploy by, you know, Harvey kind of sitting on me and basically saying, well, 
you know, say it's the director's cut, we'll make it the unrated version just to make up for all the money you lost with your movie. So the theatrical cut, we didn't see. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure yeah. we saw the director's cut from mm-hmm. based on my research. The theatrical cut sounds like it was borderline nonsense uh, mm-hmm. because eight minutes were cut. They re-added those eight minutes, which were called like extra erotic scenes, uh, especially for HBO as a sales tactic for HBO. At the time, Lizzie Borden called it a director's cut. She did press saying, uh, this is my real vision. La, 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 la. What we learn from Justin and Will is there was no director's cut. Mm-hmm. The film was essentially taken away from her in almost pre-production. She shot it. She did her job, partially because Harvey Weinstein said throughout he would ruin her career if she didn't do it. So even those interviews uh, in the 90s for the director's cut were coerced. She felt that she had to admit that this was a director's <sighs> cut she was interested in and uh, say that it was her vision when essentially there is no version of this film which is at all her vision. It was taken away from her. Uh, Kit Carson wrote these flashbacks that you're talking about. I think they needed, at a certain point in post-production, they felt they needed to explain her in some way. That was at a point where it was Kit Carson, and I forgot his wife's name, always in a cloud of cigarette smoke coming in, and they basically took over the editing. It was not really me anymore. And so that whole backstory idea um, was sort of invented after the film was shot. And I think part of it was because they didn't have an ending. And because they didn't have an ending, it had to kind of delve, I think, this was their rationale, into what made her do what she did. I think it was a kind of joke for Kit Carson because I think he made the woman look a lot like his ex-wife, Karen Black. Drama going on between Kit and Karen at that time, you know, about their son. So... I thought I thought they looked really sleazy and just horrible. Uh, which is unfortunate. Kit Carson is a writer I enjoy, but mm-hmm. it sounds like he, he was not a very good uh, actor and person in this situation. The flashbacks are nonsensical. Now, we should be clear that the Karen Black comparison is not confirmed, is alleged, but the mother character is strikingly similar in resemblance yeah. to Karen Black with, like, the long black curly hair and, yeah... I love Karen Black, and that I makes me even more angry about this film. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, even even contemporaneously, Lizzie Borden said that like a lot of her original vision for the film, once it started going, was lost because uh, mm-hmm. she essentially said it was the difference. Her vision was it would be an NC seventeen film, uh, and they said the movie cost too much for that rating. So it had to be turned R. Let's start at the very beginning of this story because Mm -hmm. she was approached with a script by Alan Moyle, which was very much a cat and mouse game that Mm -hmm. dealt with consent, which she obviously was very interested in dealing with. Um, And then the rights to who the production was going to be done by ended up in different places and finally settled in uh, with Miramax and the Weinsteins uh, while still having another investor who wanted to make a different type of movie. So then there became two different warring visions of what this film was supposed to be, and the script was entirely torn apart, and they started filming without any sort of cohesion of what the script was going to be. You know, when something is taken out of your hands that way by so many different people, you know, by executives from a company who are writing, I mean, I can't tell you how many sheets of paper got put under my door, and I'm comparing them, like, oh, do I shoot this company's notes, or do I shoot that company's notes? Like, what Get shot. I mean, it's just at a certain point, when is it your film? No ending. 
that was hmm. definitely the thing she notes is that that they started filming with no ending. She did a rewrite by Laurie Frank, which you don't see credited, so I don't even know how much that was used in the final film. It's a strange situation. We know she didn't want Sean Young as the lead. Uh, that was very much something that was forced on her. But at the same time, I think actually Sean Young does a fine job. Yeah. I, I don't. Uh, I don't I don't see a huge problem there. I can see how that was a frustrating experience. Well, her initial instinct was um, Natasha Richardson, which would have really, mm. I mean, a fascinating sure. role for her mm-hmm. and would have really elevated the project to something different, right? Definitely made it more of an art film. Sean Young was much more of a commercial actress at the time. Well, there's amount of stunt casting as well going on in this film. So um, you have Patrick Bergen, as we mentioned earlier, who is coming off sleeping with the enemy, which was a big thing. He's essentially playing the same character. Yeah, totally. Same character as that. And then um, Arnita Walker plays this black police officer who is also Sean Young's friend who she puts in these compromising positions that are ethically questionable, which I thought was a fascinating Mm -hmm. uh, She's the best part of the movie. I I actually super love her and the other cop who become buddies. The only Jewish cop in Savannah, (laughs) Georgia. It's a great little, like, thing, right? Yeah, becomes her buddy. Uh, It's... Yeah, yeah. There, there are these touches where you're like, oh, I think I see the, and yeah, I think the Lizzie Borden thing absolutely is about this, this African American cop who is put in these ethically terrible situations by the DA, which is very. She's staged as being a prostitute and bust to entrap police officers who are and, beating up and prostitutes. put in danger. Yeah, yeah. She, you can tell that like it, the, the whole movie starts with Sean Young pushing that too far. Yeah. She puts that officer in danger to try to make sure she has the evidence. And it's unclear, but there might even be a sexual assault that occurs in that yes. scenario. <laughs> that character's played by Arnita Walker, but Harvey Weinstein was pushing for Robin Givens at the time mm-hmm. for stunt yeah. casting. Robin Givens famously in a very assaultive uh, relationship with Mike Tyson. And yeah. uh, that information, the divorce and that information had come out very recently. So yeah. to put her in this film about rough sex and consent Ugh. and all that is really stomach churning. The, the nice thing is, of course, that Robin Givens went on to be stunt casted in Boomerang <laughs> in a very charming yes. role where she, where she is the woman in control mm-hmm. who ruins Eddie Murphy's mm-hmm. uh, romantic life by uh, essentially not caring about him, using him for sex and being like, goodbye. I think she's his boss, right? Yeah, they're at least working. They're in a working relationship. Uh, it's it's that, so that's great. I, it's good to know that she got such a better role. Yeah. Uh, if that happened, I'm, I mean, I assume she would have turned this down <laughs> <laughs> to her credit. I, but uh, yeah. I think the thing that I mean, there's so many things that enrage me about this situation. But I think the thing that pisses me off the most is that you can see what this could have been and mm-hmm. how forward thinking and how interesting and thoughtful and frightening in the similar way to Hand That Rocks a Cradle is like it could have been as easily a talking point uh, as that film. But it's just sure. decimated. Like, yeah, talking about those concepts of, of consent, um, that back and forth, what is the what is the line, what legally is okay, morally isn't, you know, when can you turn people in? Like, that's just fascinating, especially for this yeah. time. And I think for a psychological thriller, and it's something that rarely actually gets dealt with in film, uh, and, and then like a psychosexual thriller, that there is this attraction and repulsion uh, to rough sex with women, you know? It's like this sadomasochistic, and it's... Something that's so horrible that every woman is constantly in fear of, obviously, because we live in a rape culture. But it is something, there is obviously this attraction to it. 
and but man, that's a that's a needle to very carefully thread. Yeah. Probably not with Harvey Weinstein involved, <laughs> oh and probably not with rewrites by a man. Hey, <laughs> boy. Yeah. Well, like I said, I'd be very curious to see the Alan original Alan Moyle script of this and what yeah. that actually looks like. Uh, Alan Moyle, for people who don't know, famous for Empire Records. Um, I just want to point out one scene just to kind of capitalize on what could have gone wrong with this film. She looks at her, like, very important casework, which are all paper-based because it's 1982, while in the bathtub. Yeah. And that really (laughs) bothers me. Like, (laughs) there was a lot of things that bothered me about this film. There's a very disturbing This Little Piggy scene with Patrick Bergen where he's, like, playing with her toes. The is no good for me. The horse scene, no good. (sighs) No good. Yeah, I... I was not. I've I've never seen Sleeping with the Enemy. It's and terrifying. It's, if you talk about wondering how uh, Rebecca De Mornay bounced back, how the <laughs> hell did this guy bounce did he back? Have, if, did he bounce back? I, I don't know. I, don't I mean, he's in Patriot Games the same okay. year, at least. He's in a very good Robin Hood that I know people love uh, from 1991. The alternative to the Prince? Uh, uh, Prince of Thieves. There's, no, I didn't know another there was one. one. There's another one. Uh, we'll probably do that if we ever have a 1991 God, episode. It's the Christopher Columbus of 1991. <laughs> yeah. That's but, coming uh, up. <laughs> but yeah, what a uh, what a what a creepy creepy role. I think it's the mustache. It's a creepy oh, sure. mustache, th- which is the same mustache that he has in Sleeping with He the enemy. he continued to have a great career, but. I, I think it's partially because nobody saw this movie because, man, oh, man, yeah. if this movie was popular, uh, I would not be able to get some of these scenes out of my head. Um, the one thing I do have to say about this that is, I think, the the beauty of the Internet and the beauty of podcasting is that now these artists and these filmmakers who had learned very valuable lessons are able to impart their lessons of, of what they learned and when they should have walked away to a younger generation of filmmakers who should recognize their rights. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, an interesting story because I think Lizzie Borden tried to be as canny as possible to do everything to please everyone because she was concerned about her career being ruined. And the truth is she yeah. did everything Weinstein said and her career was ruined because of like yeah. he didn't ruin her career. This movie scuttled stuff for a long time. Uh, and so and it just made people think she was a bad director so, and she unsuccessfully, she tried very hard to take her name yeah. off it, even after. Yes. And it, that was he, actually it was why he said he would, he, he would ruin her. It was not 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 doing what he said, because she did a lot of what he said. Yeah. It was that she didn't want her name on it. And he said, if you take your yeah. name off, I'll ruin you. And leaving her name on still hurt her career a lot. So it's these people are terrible and they hurt you no matter what you do. Oh, man. Well, once again, uh, go check out this interview. It's uh, it's much more comprehensive. It's fantastic. That's uh, The Important Cinema Club uh, run by Justin DeClue and uh, Will Sloan. It's absolutely fantastic. And go check out uh, Lizzie Borden's early work because that's obviously more representative of, of what she's capable of and hopefully what we'll be seeing more of soon. Uh, sounds like she's got some projects that are coming up that are finally getting financed. Uh, so we're going to come back and we're going to end 1992 on an up <laughs> because we're going to talk obviously about dueling Christopher Columbus movies in 1992. Uh, There's actually a third one that I'm going to bring up because this thing is wild. Mm. That's coming up after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, listeners. If you're enjoying the podcast, Season 2 of the TV show is coming out December 6th. And you'll be able to see episodes covering 1975, 1986, 1994, and 2000. Not only will you see the faces of Cam, Alicia, and myself, and they're good faces, very expressive, but you're also going to hear from so many more film experts and maybe even some filmmakers talking about the movies you love. And here's where it gets even better. Hollywood Suite is in free preview for the whole month of December, and you can watch both seasons of A Year in Film and great movies from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Don't forget to watch the first season of A Year in Film now and find out how to catch the free preview while it lasts at hollywoodsuite.ca. You know that Hollywood Suite airs great content, and they've got a real treat lined up. December 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the 2000s channel is the premiere of Valley of Tears, a 10-part HBO Max original drama series. You'll be able to watch the first two episodes back-to-back, and then each subsequent episode will air weekly after that on Saturdays. Have raucous Saturday night plans? Don't worry. After the episodes air, they're going to be available on Hollywood Suite On Demand exclusively. Listeners, the trailer alone for Valley of Tears is gorgeous, which makes sense because it's Israel's highest-budget TV series, ever, and clearly every dollar is on that screen. It follows four soldiers caught in the crossfire of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I'm excited to watch it, one, because I know nothing about the Yom Kippur War and would like to know more about it, and two, because when people ask me what I'm watching, I'm going to be like, oh, just this amazing HBO Max original 10-part series called Valley of Tears that's airing exclusively on Hollywood Suite in Canada, and then a conversation will be started. Check out hollywoodsuite.ca for more information and to see that awesome trailer. Can you imagine walking into one movie theater expecting to see a thrilling, gritty Ridley Scott take on Christopher Columbus as portrayed by a deeply moist Gerard Depardieu? And what you end up sitting through is a swashbuckling, very dated interpretation of the same story featuring an unkempt furry Tom Selleck as the King of Spain. The general format of this show is that we provide historical context for a segment of our given year, and then we choose two movies that represent that. For this part of the episode, we're just going to be doing things a little differently. We'll be talking about both movies at the same time, because as we said before, 1992 saw two movies that told the story of Christopher Columbus released to the public at the exact same time, and they both failed (laughs) miserably. Okay, who wants to start? Because this is wild. Sure, I'll start. Uh, Before we get too deep into the movies, uh, I just want to talk about the Columbus (laughs) Quincentenary, uh, which is why everything was so exciting. Of course, uh, uh, we all know uh, in 1492, Columbus (laughs) sailed the ocean blue. Uh, And uh, so in 1992, that is 500 years later, um, uh, we don't 
celebrate a lot of quincentenaries in uh, the Western Hemisphere, obviously, which we probably should because indigenous people have been here the whole time, <laughs> as we will talk about. But uh, yeah, it was a huge deal, especially for Spain. Uh, so Spain uh, had in 1992 uh, the World's Fair in Seville. Uh, in Barcelona, they had the Olympics. And in uh, around the world, they rebuilt uh, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, uh, two uh, exact specifications of Columbus, to sail especially to America uh, and go up and down the coasts of America because they wanted to underline uh, what someone described as the uh, most significant historical event since the birth of Christ. Oh, Jesus. Um, oh my God. Uh, yeah, which, I mean, I you can kind of get, yeah. but it also <laughs> implies that you have to agree that Christ is uh, 100% a real dude. Um, <laughs> well, these movies uh, do deal with religion a lot. Yes, so. a lot of religion. God. So just know that this was a huge deal uh, around the world. And interestingly, uh, on top of all of this, obviously, uh, a lot of indigenous groups uh, go, uh, <laughs> a point of order, <laughs> Columbus, not a great guy. Mm. Um, and interestingly, this was not disorganized. Uh, in 1990, uh, 350 representatives from uh, indigenous groups across the Western Hemisphere met in Quito, Ecuador, uh, for what is called the Intercontinental Gathering of Indigenous People of the Americas. And it was the uh, it was one of the largest gatherings of all of the tribes of indigenous people of America. And uh, it was created to specifically combat the quincentennial of Columbus um, and provide resistance. Uh, And it was especially because at the time, uh, the Columbus Day was celebrated uh, pretty significantly across the hemisphere. It's not so much in Canada, which is interesting, uh, I guess, because we have Giovanni Caboto. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we have a different guy found, quote unquote, found Canada. And also, I think by the time all of us were uh, growing up, even that was thrown out a bit because of the Vikings. In, well, uh, if you're watching the show uh, Secret of Oak Island, like my partner is religiously, you'll know mm-hmm. that the history book is currently being rewritten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I also think we were very into the people's history uh, by mm-hmm. the 90s, yeah. which involved indigenous mm-hmm. people. Uh, but yeah, so just know that also in 1992, there was a massive, it was the big start of dismantling mm-hmm. Columbus Day. It was the first city to change. Uh, Davis, California was the first city to change Columbus Day to uh, International Solidarity Day with indigenous people. Mexico City had a massive protest of indigenous people. Like this was honestly indigenous people mobilized so hard in America that it properly put a damper on like maybe question Columbus and the discovery of America. Uh, and it's, it's really what kicked off, especially the, the modern talk about removing Columbus day entirely. But a part of this, uh, was of course that Hollywood <laughs> wanted to get in on the action and Spain wanted to get in on the action. Cause both of these films, one is the official film of the quincentennial, uh, mm-hmm. not the one you may think. And the other one, <laughs> and the <laughs> other one is, uh, heavily, actually the other one had crazy access. Like it's like as if it's shot mm-hmm. in the Spanish equivalents of Buckingham palace and like, yeah, uh, there's you like know, shots the, of the, the Alhambra, the which lives, is super rare in Granada. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. So we should say the two films, Films are Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, and uh, 1492, Conquest of The Paradise. latter being directed by Ridley Scott. 
Yes. Yeah. But Ridley Scott was originally attached to the first one. Yes, movie. yes. Everybody wanted Ridley Scott, uh, Why? interestingly. I, don't um, I like I Ridley Scott, but I don't understand. Yeah. It's interesting because this is really what, other than The Duelist, his first film, this is one of his first historical epics. Yeah. I think he's a guy who famously, uh, well, number one, they wanted him because he was coming off of Thelma and Louise. I guess. Well, that's why Not I'm the, asking, though. You come yeah. off Thelma and Louise and I, automatically you're going to be. I guess he's, also it's interesting because you're like, this movie's kind of Oscar baity. Uh, Ridley Scott has been nominated only three times mm-hmm. for Oscars shockingly really uh, and he's never won he's he, for mm. directing he's never won an Oscar uh, so I mean his films have been best picture plenty but uh, yeah it's kind of an interesting thing so yeah I, I think he's famously obsessed with ships if you watch his movies <laughs> he, he enjoys ships he probably had no bones about ships, shooting on these ships, ships. unicorns weirdly yeah. you don't spend as much time on this ship in this movie as you do in the other one you spend like mm. 90% of the two and a half two and a half hour runtime yes. on the damn ship. Both of these movies are over two hours cl- oh and close to two and a half hours. Uh, yeah, I do want to note, I, and it's it's a formality, but I want to apologize because there was a point while watching, I think, The Discovery, where I was like, this is one of the worst things to happen. And then I realized we did it to ourselves. Like, yeah. you know, like we chose yeah. this. Like, this was a, a really... I, I will say I enjoyed myself, uh, especially because I think most You're of us watched... so that makes sense. I, uh, number one, I, I actually don't... I think I went in thinking that 1492 Conquest of Paradise was a miserable failure mm-hmm. and i so i didn't mind it that much because it's it's just a bloated either. a bloated historical yeah, epic which was common yeah i mean we're talking about it's the like coming after robin hood prince of thieves mm-hmm. last of the mohicans was a 19 agent mm-hmm. so it was like a uh, dances with wolves of course is probably also listen i will also say that as somebody who has drank the kool-aid that columbus is just terrible uh, <laughs> and i was expecting these movies to be a lot kinder to columbus mm-hmm. and and e- both movies uh, show a fairly mixed portrayal mm-hmm. of Columbus, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Okay. I have to point of order um, yeah. because I'm going to say the the discovery um, is this bizarre swashbuckling yeah. epic, yeah. Where erotic, the very like, erotic kind of yeah. Harlequin <laughs> romance. Yes. If you want Columbus to honk Catherine Zeta Jones boobs. Uh, as as no Catherine further. Zeta-Jones stares out into the middle distance yeah. like it's a, like a 50s melodrama. It's very strange. But it opens with him like straight up sword fighting. I think they're in, mm-hmm. uh, aren't they in the, they're in the Indies somewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure. But or like, Granada yeah. maybe? I don't know. Maybe it's But yeah, they are like, I, they, it is never clear. No. This movie is clear mm-hmm. about nothing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, it's like a full like Errol Flynn style uh, sword fight thing that happens with like slapstick and people falling into crowds. Like it is the weirdest thing. And it feels like a movie made in the 70s. You almost yes. expect like sound effects like a boing. Like yeah. it's like yeah. a cartoon. It's, I mean, it's worth saying you're absolutely right. The crazy thing about this is the discovery feels deeply like an old movie and 1492 feels like a movie you would make in the 90s maybe even progressive mm-hmm. but yeah. uh but it's worth saying so uh christopher columbus the discovery directed by john glenn kind of push him out of the way he doesn't really matter uh, <laughs> it's really the brainchild of Ilya and alexander salkind who most people know from superman mm-hmm. but i think it's closest to their other big franchise which has mostly been lost to time which is the three musketeers right. they had a series of three musketeers movies through the 70s and weirdly tried to reboot it in the 80s uh, with the same musketeers michael york etc and uh, so this is very close to that weirdly because i think even uh, superman probably thanks to richard donner even more than richard lester who took over in two was visually all right 
because of those director's <laughs> visions because the musketeers they're directed by richard lester as well they're they look a lot like uh <laughs> the discovery so it's, so they were trying to cash in it was uh that one is especially i think fine to say a shit show <laughs> well, my personal favorite is marlon brando mm. is in this film which mm. is wild as as the grand inquisitor yeah and supposedly the only reason why he took the role was because he claimed or they he was told that it was going to be very sympathetic towards indigenous people's plights uh marlon brando of course very much known for his mm-hmm. um his empathy towards that even bringing someone to yeah. to accept his oscar yeah. uh, to discuss Sachin about, Sachin 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 Littlefoot. Littlefoot. oh sorry we said that yeah <laughs> no, th- thanks guys i just i like that name a lot <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so this was a big deal for him. And then he appeared in the movie and was like, well, I guess this is just a paycheck, which I wonder if that's what made him more aggressive later on in his life. I think he does. He doesn't phone it in, especially compared to the other Salkin famous thing. He's in Superman for two minutes, mm-hmm. was the highest paid actor of all time and does phone it in. Tried to tried to get himself replaced with a glowing donut, famously, <laughs> uh, which he's like, wouldn't it be more interesting if I was this kind of alien? But uh, also beyond the fact that he took this thinking that it would have a, a positive portrayal of the effects of Columbus on the indigenous people, which it has some of. It's, it's a not bit. great. Uh, it's not as good as 1492. But he also uh, sued the production because they tried to not pay the indigenous actors they used. Yeah. Um, and he personally was like, you you can't market this film on my name if you don't pay them. I like, because so, uh, he he's yeah. first build, which is crazy mm-hmm. to me. Tom Selleck is second build, which is just as crazy because she he's in like four minutes <laughs> yeah. of the film and so but, furry uh, he's a, so furry oh my god and tom Selleck is only in the film because he wanted to work with marlon brando he <laughs> yeah. admits his casting is stupid uh, he <laughs> yeah. thinks the whole film is bad and he apparently almost when marlon brando was fighting he, tom Selleck. the reason off. they ended up paying marlon brando is tom Selleck says i'm walking off if, so if i'm not working with brando there is we'll talk about this a bit more but there is most of the reviews of the discovery are very negative and yes. the thing about doing these dueling columbuses is it gave reviewers so many so many <laughs> avenues for puns and like you know like ooh, for a film about discovering the the world is round it sure is flat like that's a lot of the but yes. there's one variety review which becky pointed out to me and i read multiple times because I can't believe it because it's it's so positive and it makes no sense and so there's two reviews in this review of Brando and Tom Selleck the first review of Brando the reviewer says and I'm not going to name I'm not going to say what her name is you'll find it by googling I'm not going to call her out Brando makes a grand grand inquisitor (laughs) great line and then on Tom Selleck on Tom Selleck she writes Tom Selleck's wry turn as King Ferdinand is a pleasant surprise, although a wan Rachel Ward, who plays uh, Queen Isabella, could use more backbone in her evangelical enthusiasm. (laughs) Okay. Who wrote this review? No, no, my favorite, if I may, because I wrote down my favorite quotes. This is one of those things where I was like, Jesus. Okay, so (laughs) she writes this like it's a good thing. Columbus's explanation of his navigating theory using a large melon as a globe is fun and effective. One almost expects him to burst into a Rodgers and Hammerstein-style song about his love and adventure. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the other film uses an orange. Everyone always says, like, what fruit are they going to use in this film? There's another, can we go back to the review? Uh, Of course, I've got got another good one. One too. Okay. Um, uh, this is guys. actually how she ends the review. 
Script neglects to clarify that Sipango is an ancient term for Japan. <laughs> she also notes that Benicio del Toro is the worst actor Whoa! in this film. Oh, Benicio del Toro. Poor young Benicio. Soon to win Academy Award Benicio uh, del Toro. My personal favorite is overall supporting players have interesting faces and okay delivery. So does that wow. mean indigenous people? I'm presuming so. I mean, uh, yeah. Or the other sailors, I guess. <laughs> I think this, uh, I don't. I will say it's worth noting for any of the actors who are burnt in this, all Almost every single actor is not the first choice other than Marlon Brando. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the man who plays Christopher Columbus, George Coraface, I don't know how to pronounce Caraface. it. Uh, sure. <laughs> He's uh, French, isn't he? He's I don't know. Yeah. Uh, oh, is he? Okay. Oh. Well, then that this just muddles my pronunciation. <laughs> it was supposed to be Tim- Timothy Dalton is okay. the important yeah. thing. Uh, t- uh, Timothy Dalton uh, was cast, uh, and Isabella Rossellini was supposed to play uh, the queen. Uh, and uh, when Timothy Dalton got to set, three days before filming began, he noticed that none of the famous actors who had, he had been told were cast were cast. He checked with his bank. I guess normally you get a guarantee statement mm-hmm. that you are going to be paid. Mm-hmm. Uh that did not mm-hmm. exist. Didn't come uh, so he successfully, I believe, sued them for a twenty-five uh, million dollar breach of contract mm-hmm. because they did not have the actors they had said that they would, and they could not guarantee to give him his two point five million dollar fee. Uh, to be fair, this production, as we will probably note, essentially bankrupted. Uh, they also said Dustin Hoffman would be in it, who I don't mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. ever got told. Uh, so he, oh, also it was supposed to be directed by George Cosmatos, mm-hmm. uh, which he expected when he came on set. They tried to hire John Glenn, who had done the 80s James Bonds, to please Timothy Dalton. They also hired a bunch of James Bond actors, including Benicio Del Toro and Robert Davi, uh, to try to please him. There's uh, a lot of skullduggery on this. This is like a the most skullduggery. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm fascinated to know that that's like uh, that they they so obviously were not going to pay him (laughs) that Timothy Dalton could tell before the film even started and was like peace. And if you guys also don't know the super digging in the whole crazy thing that really blew up the Salkins is the fact that. Alexander's the father, Ilya's the son. Ilya, his partner was Jane Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin's daughter. She had fronted $6 million to allow them to make Mm. the film. Then, essentially, all all these crafty, grifty things were happening to the point where (laughs) Ilya (laughs) charged him with, beyond other things, uh, contract fraud, breach of good faith and fair dealing and racket hearing he essentially Ooh. he essentially cuz he would not pay back uh jane so he essentially accused his own father mm-hmm. of of doing the producers yeah. the sad like thing he about producers this film did. is it broke up a father son relationship <laughs> <laughs> and from what i can tell f- from oh. what i can tell forever oh. like like uh <laughs> Alexander Salkin says that Ilya Salkin says his mother will no longer like in 1982. Oh my God. Ilya Salkin says his mother will no longer talk to him. Alexander Salkin says his son won't talk to him and he's not allowed to see his grandchildren. Anymore. I don't know what oh expression to have on my face because it's so horrible, but it's also like, oh my God, this movie did that. It almost makes yeah. it worth it having to sit through this. Oh. Is that yeah, cool? it's, <laughs> it's it's. I mean, it's really crazy, and and, and it's uh, like it's a movie written by Mario Puzo yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah, like we say, Mario Puzo of the Godfather. Of, uh, Godfather. Yeah. Yes, uh, and of Superman. Yes. To be fair, a lot of people forget that Puzo yeah. did uh, one of the drafts of Superman. So just um, doing the math. So Timothy Dalton walks off three days before filming begins. 
That means the actor who played Columbus, George Coraface, or however we would like to pronounce it, had 24 hours to prepare? I believe he was cast in another role, so he might have been familiar with the script. So hopefully he memorized these scripts other parts. (laughs) And I think think knowing all of this chaos with the actors, they all do a fairly good job. Like, I don't think anyone's doing a terrible... Tom Selleck is really maybe No, Tom Selleck is terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, he he fully admits he took this as a His goof because he wanted to meet Marlon Brando. cloak has more personality than he does yes. in this film. There's a lot of cloaks. <laughs> but but he's, he, he's not in it a ton. I think Benicio Del Toro is kind of fun. Both yeah. of these films yeah, decide to decide to take Columbus a bit off the hook from some of the atrocities against the indigenous people by casting. They decide to choose a couple guys who are the, the real, mm. like, essentially Columbus turned a blind eye to these more violent men who did bad stuff. I think he's interesting. Catherine Zeta-Jones gets nothing to do, so she's just she's so young. beautiful. Well, now just Sigourney um, Weaver in the other movie, right? Yeah, let, yeah, we should probably switch to 1492. Yes, and yes. Okay. Try I, I will say the one good. thing I give this movie before we move to 1492 is it uh, does admit to Columbus's ties to slavery, mm-hmm. which I think the other movie dodges pretty mm-hmm. hard. Yeah, uh, once again, it also has a kind of interesting portrayal of the indigenous people, I think probably through the push of Marlon Brando. They, they bother to have a scene where an indigenous person, rather than being taken back to Spain to show the queen, chooses to essentially commit suicide. Mm-hmm. He tries to swim back to the island. And also they have the indigenous people rising up and murdering uh the crummy people they have left over which is actually probably not what ha- happened like probably what happened is actually what they say in the other movie but yeah. um it's so there is a, th- at least you see the indigenous people be pushed too far uh by the bad guys but it has a lot less of the atrocities which are much more in the other movie 1492 a, conquest of paradise a lot of atrocities in conquest of paradise yeah. yeah yeah well conquest of paradise i mean it opens with witch burnings right so it's yeah. like yeah. you Spanish, know what we're getting yeah. into i actually appreciate that like it gave me a bit of hope for the film opening with very graphic scenes of the Spanish Inquisition mm-hmm. and uh, and not having Marlon Brando as the grand grand Inquisitor, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, you know right from the beginning. I guess this is a theme with a lot of Ridley Scott's films to come, like Kingdom of Heaven and Gladiator. Like it's going to be graphic, it's going to be dark. This isn't going to be as sugar coated as like the VHS that your you know grade seven history teacher put on explaining Columbus. Yes. This is, you're right. This is not a thing you would show in school. No. Uh, the Inquisition? No. <laughs> well, yes. I watched Name of the Rose I mean, in all, high school. I'm just saying. Yeah. So. Ridley Scott, I mean, is called Conquest of Paradise. Yeah. He is interested in the tragedy of Columbus. The fact that it, this guy maybe had, maybe had a positive high-minded idea and it just went so badly. Um, because, like, I mean, it's undeniable that Columbus was arrested and brought back to Spain. Mm-hmm. For how poorly things went, I think both both films really overlook uh, the devastating effect of smallpox. The fact that the mm-hmm. Arawak were essentially genocided within the decade, which was mostly smallpox, but also uh, a lot of them murdering them and enslaving them to dig for gold. I will say the discovery; it's very brief, but you see the rat. It's so subtle, mm. but the rat runs from the ship down a rope into the water and so the, it's kind of like for the viewer to assume that will be what causes so much of smallpox sure. and the plague. If yeah. you know about that yeah. at all, you know. Yeah. Yes, if, if you know you about do, that. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, it's just but, a cute rat yeah. doing something yeah. silly. Uh, can I just just quickly derail for a second? My sure. family and I have this whole thing where we were watching a movie once where a rat runs across an alley in an establishing shot, and it just occurred to us all at the same time that someone had to cue that rat. So in mm. our family, we then be- became, before something began, we'd go... And cue the rat. And 
So that's yeah. just one of our family things. I just your family. It. Your family sounds fun. My family watches Hand the Rock the Cradle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other interesting thing I think with this film is it's written by a woman, uh, Rosalind Bosch, who's a journalist, uh, and and was essentially uh, she was doing. Uh, uh, research for a Parisian magazine, La Point, and and she looked into the letters of Columbus. And yeah, she went to the archive and like lived mm-hmm, there. Yeah, for a long time. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, it's, years. It's interesting for how intense the research was, but uh, almost immediately she thought it was a screenplay, which is interesting. She's like, "This is a screenplay," a- and mm-hmm. she is very obsessed with essentially the truth because I I guess you know she was doing it for so long and so early that she probably saw this uh uprising of protest from indigenous peoples and i think she became interested because she's like there's kind of these two cliches where it's like he's this pure genocide guy and he's this pure hero and she says that it's kind of in between because she mm-hmm. so much of the violence and slavery and things she's like that was a part of the world so it's hard to know his intentions so that's what mm-hmm. fascinated uh her in the story and I think what fascinated Ridley Scott as well because I think both of them say there is no question that what happened is an awful tragedy uh, but how much was this man involved how much was he affected I think we know he's a little more involved than they show in the story they do also make a pretty classic mustache twirling villain out of a guy who we know was kind of involved but we don't know if he was the sole let's cut people's hand off guy because yeah. <laughs> uh, even as the, the historian points out people's hands were being cut off in Spain at the time so uh, mm-hmm. it probably it probably wouldn't have phased Columbus to say cut their hands off yeah this is just how we treat people yeah yeah Um, That scene is horrifying. I mean, the whole thing is really, it's a rough watch. Like, even watching yes. them all succumb to scurvy and, and uh, serious isolation issues on the uh, on the boat, that's a tough watch. Like, it's like, yeah, this was this yeah. was no picnic for anybody. There's, there's a few positives. I'm trying in my life and on this podcast at the same time to be more <laughs> positive and kind. Um, one avenue is going better than the other. But... Uh, <laughs> I really like the Vangelis score. Yes. Of course, it's not like it's not really Scott's first time working with Vangelis, who did this the uh, soundtrack for Blade Runner, like so iconic. And actually, looking doing some research on Vangelis and like what are kind of considered his best, what's the best work. This is this rates very high up there with music critics. Mm-hmm. Um, not as a film, just as the the tracks. And I did listen to it isolated. It is beautiful. Like it's choral music that uh, Vangelis used a certain form of Latin to communicate. It's quite elaborate. And I do think the cinematography, and just so we're clear, it's uh, Costa Rica that they choose mm. to mm. have be the new world. Um, it's so it's beautiful. beautiful. Like the yeah. the images of the ships. If you are a ship enthusiast like Ridley Scott, I can't think of a better film for you because I was actually quite en- enraptured with just looking at the ships. They look and they the ones from the Discovery look like a Disney theme park ride like it's ridiculous um how bad oh, they yeah. look yeah these are the actual ships that cam alluded to earlier in the episode that were built for the reconstruction i think that these are actually another set of ships i tried Shit. to look it up Good no Lord. no it's crazy that the, that the two sets because these ones i think were built in Britain. Built at the same time yeah yeah i think you're but you're right. right it's it's you're right that ridley scott had the exact same intention but i just yeah. think he maybe had no access to those boats the other thing that i would say for this film is my God, some of the supporting actors. Like mm. you have Benicio del Toro in the Discovery, and he's not quite yet the Benicio that we know. And I don't think he's as bad as the woman in the Variety thinks no. he is. But the character actors in 1492: Armand Asante, Chucky Cairo, mm. Michael Wincott, who is the main villain, who looks like a universal monster yeah. from the 1930s. He is terrifying and effective, and I think this is one of his best roles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there is not there are some things to praise for 1492. Yeah. Depp for me as Columbus is a bit ridiculous. Agreed. I found yes. him ridiculous. He was it's worth saying he was coming in super hot. He had had the relatively unheard of at the time best actor nomination for Cyrano de Bergerac. Cyrano. Yeah. yeah. Um so he was and it was really him trying to kickstart that brief a uh, one second of like my father, the hero, green card, uh, American yeah. <laughs> career that he tried, which is kind of crazy because this is also like we know how much further he would go to seed, but this is a bit of a gone to seed. Uh, Gerard Depardieu, he's not the sexy hot guy from the French films. No, he's gone full Columbus. Yes. Yes. This is, yes. I mean, this but is something I, I always have issues with too, is watch, watching movies that don't just commit to an accent or a nationality. Oh, so yes. I think that it's like, okay, so you do have people with Spanish <laughs> accents, French, English, American, yeah. like it's, but they're all intended to be Spanish. It, that's always a little like, very, like very I, few Spanish or his Hispanic people are involved, I will say. Is <laughs> yeah, an odd I feel thing. like a film, a film like this, if they're going for that kind of authenticity and you have someone using their archival research and you're building these ships, like you are going the full, mm-hmm. the full yard. I don't know what that metaphor sure. is. Never mind. Yeah. I, Whole nine yards. That's a thing. Stop yeah. using another goal in my life Football. on this podcast and life is to understand my mixed <laughs> metaphors. But um, I love them. I love them. Why? Why wouldn't you just go subtitles? Even yeah. in 92, there were yeah. multiple films that were entirely subtitled, especially if you want a Best Picture nom. Subtitling is completely reasonable. And I felt like that would have been okay, except you do have some English-speaking actors that probably couldn't do Spanish. Yeah, lots of American actors. Worth also saying for this one, they also used a lot of indigenous people, 170 actors from four different tribes in Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, and yeah. also they brought back the uh, six main actors from the mission, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay. One is um, Versilio Moya, who's probably the most recognizable. He's the young one of the young indigenous boys in the mission. And he's one of the only credited named characters mm-hmm. that's indigenous. He's Utapan, who kind of becomes um, like the most important translator and, and kind of orchestrator for the indigenous peoples. And his performance he only has two credits, the mission in nineteen eighty six, so he was very young. Mm-hmm. And this, and he's really good. He has like, really, he has really like good. the equivalent of that guy throwing him in the boat or himself over the boat in the discovery. He has yeah. the the best burn where Columbus is like, Oh, Tapan, why have you forsaken me? And he's like, You never bothered to learn my language and just like <laughs> fails. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, you rule. <laughs> Dude. Uh, I, yeah, I would say if you this is a two and a half hour film. Yes. If you can somehow get through the first hour and a half, which is entirely the voyage, and get to that second, mostly yeah. third act, where they're in they're in San Salvador, it is quite impressive. Even watching them raise the bell, so they build this mm-hmm. I mean, like just the concept. They had to build that bell too oh, totally, for a yeah. prop and the city. And they're trying, like, yeah. yeah, and the city, and they had to they have to raise it up into a church, and just the risk and the danger and like that they brought that instead uh, of food is what makes me go. What yeah. are you doing? Oh, yeah. I think the fa- <laughs> yeah, I also, bring a bag of lime yeah. so you don't get scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know that, uh, <laughs> but you're you're too cutting edge. But yeah, Sorry. I think you're right, Alicia. That what makes this more interesting is that it is not about the first sailing it is about (laughs) half about the first sailing and half about the multiple returns and especially the revolution people rising up against columbus and then essentially like yeah his his uh ruination in court he was uh he was forgiven by the queen but he essentially became an an exile for the end of his life and a lot of a lot of the reason why we have these 
warring visions of Columbus, I mean, the hero is gone. That's just not true. <laughs> Let's say that for sure. Uh, but a lot of the reason why we don't know what he was responsible for is because there was such a harsh uh, propaganda campaign against him. There was a very yeah. big anti-Italian sentiment in Spain following it. Um, so it's hard to tell what he was specifically responsible for. Like, did he release the dogs on people? Did he say indigenous babies make great dog food? Hard to know. Uh, Like he might have. And he definitely was uh, like a huge part in the genocide. But yeah, it's interesting. And I also agree that I am not this kind of guy. But I know that there are plenty of men in the world who are like Ridley Scott who love to watch sailing stuff and the reality of sailing (laughs) stuff. And this gets into incredibly crunchy, like, oh, how the rigging works. Uh Uh, It gets very into, because he's very into, I think Ridley Scott kind of hates religion. He's fascinated by it, but hates it. So he gets deeply into the fact that Columbus knew what he was doing because he listened to Muslim scholars and Muslim navigation uh, rather Mm -hmm. than Christian navigation, which was just hoodoo. The Moroccan, yeah, Yeah. like the the Moors, the Moorish way of following stars. So yeah, he has like a sextant which which is like mm-hmm. forbidden probably in heresy Spain. yeah yeah so uh yeah it's very interesting to say that that not not that like he, there's none of these are about the earth is flat the earth is round kind of thing they're they're more about the fact that the christianity had pushed science down so hard yeah. that that it was heresy to believe science which was mostly asian and muslim and, and african what a timely Thought. I, I do. There's a, a line, there's a sentence that Jeff Bardieu utters as Columbus that I actually wrote down because I was like, oh, that's that's at the heart of what we're talking about. And it's paradise and hell can both be earthly. Mm. And I was just like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I got shivers a little bit. I was like, mm. yeah. Well, we've been talking about depictions of, uh, of Columbus, and uh, I would like to point us towards the third film. Uh, in oh that was released this year because I am fascinated by this yes. and I am so excited for us to do Titanic because guys I've got some stuff oh, God. there. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm familiar with Titanic two or whatever. Oh no, my friend, doing, just wait. They are doing Titanic, so get ready. I, I thought so. Here we go. Uh, there is a an animated feature for children called The Magic Voyage from 1992. Mm. It is of German origin. And just to give you a little bit of perspective on where this is coming from, uh, the director Michael Schumann uh, said that he wanted to create a film from a more satirical view in order to differentiate ourselves clearly from the lofty views of history so we can present Columbus as a lovable, charming, and befuddled scholar (laughs) rather than having him portrayed as a greedy explorer as depicted in history books. Befuddled. (laughs) Befuddled scholar. Alicia, you will be pleased that he is voiced by voice of Munchie Dom DeLuise. That's right. (laughs) Uh, In the second dub, there's two English dubs of this. The first one has actors who are unfortunately not names. Uh, The second one is um, Corey Feldman and Irene Cara and Dom DeLuise and uh, Samantha Egger. It's narrated by Mickey Rooney. So, you know, Mm. they brought the big guns. Samantha Egger. She plays Isabella. They're playing the classic characters you remember from these other two films. Uh, Irene Cara is the queen of the fairies and uh, Corey Feldman what? is of course the talking woodworm. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, who's also no- known as a bookworm and there's a bunch of debate on whether he's a bookworm or a woodworm. That's what people yes. really focused on for this movie. This, this escaped my and, and the woodworm, I did you read that the woodworm this. was originally, like it was supposed to be a sequel to a 
movie about a woodworm on Noah's Ark. Yep. And then they decided to spin it off into its own thing. It's wild. It's Cam yeah. Cam sent me a fourth trailer oh, that yes. I regretted I regretted watching. <laughs> it is worth saying we can hem and haw over the discovery and whether it's worthwhile, but ma- the magic voyage I mean, it's for kids. I guess you can write it off. Uh, but the one you cannot write off is Carry On Columbus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the a, incredibly belated attempt to reboot the British sex comedy Carry On films, uh, which, if you're not familiar, is basically about showing busty women doing things. And it's full it, of, like, it, just it, double intenders. That's, yeah, like, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it had some interesting comedians of the time, but it is famously considered by most Carry On fans, as niche as that is, of the is one of the worst, if not the worst, Carry <laughs> on film many of the actors say they wish it never happened and it was once <laughs> voted in a poll the worst british film of all time uh, i did not watch it but i uh yeah it's kind of that's a kind of fascinating uh and actually the funny thing is as much as as badly reviewed as it was as poorly considered as it was it still made more money than either the discovery or 1492 in england oh my god <laughs> well that tells you what that's, they think about their colonialism I I can't believe that. Yeah. I cannot believe oh that. Oh my god! Something that came to mind is if people are, if all the benefits of 1492 yeah. that I'm talking about, I would say watch 1987's Cobra Verde mm-hmm. with, uh, which is a Werner Herzog film starring Klaus Kinski about the slave trade and around the same. Yeah. I think it's more like 1600s. I could be wrong, but it's it's done. Better. Yes, it's just yeah. better. I do. Like, if you like that stuff, I was talking about, just watch. Absolutely, I, I think that and Aguirre both heavily, <laughs> yeah, heavily yeah. influenced uh, Ridley Scott, and yeah. you see it. But I think that both of those are more partially because it's Klaus Kinski being insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also uh, might be worth saying that Werner Herzog might not have the best record of a, not abusing indigenous people. He doesn't at all. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, oh we can God. make a we can make a 1492 of Werner <laughs> in uh, 500 years, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. OK, I think we need to. That's where we need to end the episode. It's very are you important. sure I'm, we could go on another hour? Yeah. There, could be another, there could be a fifth could be Columbus, Columbus movie. Oh, total failure of a film (laughs) so amazing all right okay i think that's everything i had so much fun with this one guys Mm -hmm. thank you so much alicia fletcher thank you i'm very ashamed of myself for some reason (laughs) i don't know why you were a delight to the senses as always cameron maitland thank you so much uh, yeah, I don't. I don't even know what to say at this point. Uh, support indigenous rights. Yes, please. I hope this. I hope this isn't. I hope both hope and don't hope this is our best episode. Of the <laughs> I think we had a lot of fun in this one. Uh, the rough thing was when we were doing like the um, talk where we were gonna what we were gonna talk about withholding mm-hmm. facts from each other. I think was the funnest mm-hmm. part. But, like we can't we get did into it on this. purpose. Yeah, I know. I like that. Um, okay, so that's all for this week. You can join us again in two weeks. Things are much lighter in 2007, guys. Uh, and we're going to have a look at a movie that featured Adina Menzel in a role where she was cast not to sing and Patrick Dempsey in a role where he was. Huh. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. 
The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. I adore children, Mrs. Fartell. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.